Well, good morning and uh, welcome. Good morning to those joining us at Crossroads Highland Park, Vernon Hills at home. Um, I had this neat, I was going to say, I thought it was a fairly clever, brief little introduction to this series on Jonah. I was going to start by noting that uh, any journalist worthy of their press pass knows that if a dog bites a man, it's not a story. If a man bites a dog, uh, it might be. And correspondingly, if a, uh, if, if a man or a woman eats a fish, that's not news. But if a fish eats a person, and especially if they then spit them out alive later on, time to stop the presses. Uh, I was going to comment that uh, the tragedy of all that is that many people think the book of Jonah is about a fish, <laughs> and it's simply not. Uh, it is so much more than that. It is a story uh, of judgment against evil. It is a story about God's mercy. It is a story about misguided nationalism. It is a story about people running away from God. It is, it is a foreshadowing of the parable of the prodigal son. It's a foreshadowing of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Besides all of that, it's this amazing work of literature at levels that, that we will look at over the course of the next couple months. But shocking levels, I think. You, you probably have not seen all that's going on in this book. So, I was going to say it is so much more than a story about a fish, and then I was going to uh, say, here we go, and I then decided uh, this week, in light of this week, I mean, it was, it was quite a week, I mean, starting again with record number of deaths of COVID, starting with what's going on in Kenosha, starting with the consequential elections that flipped the Senate, starting with all that went on in the Capitol, uh, at, the, at the, the rally that turns into a protest, that turns into violence, that, that, that turns into what it turned into. And so, uh, in light of that, I decided that the introduction was, uh, was too cute and trite, and additionally, I thought all anyone is going to hear with what I was going to say was the critique of nationalism. And so, uh, I, I just want to acknowledge all that and, and pause to sort of frame this book of Jonah, which is, uh, uh, I, I believe, I mean, I picked this way back when. So, I, I'm, I was not smart or I was not prescient. I was not, and it didn't happen recently, like, oh, let's go to the book of Jonah. I preached on Jonah. This will be my third time through the book of Jonah. Preached on it the first time, I think, in 1987. <laughs> And then I preached on it early 2000s, and uh, I have those sermons. I keep all that stuff, and so I was able to go back and look at it and what I said. At the time, I didn't see some of the things that, as I have got into the book a month ago, I started to see at a very different level. Uh, but I didn't plan this, but I believe in God's providence that this book comes to us at just such a time as this. I feel the need to warn you. Uh, there's a reason why the prophets were lonely people, uh, because they say really hard things, and uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna hear really hard things. As a general rule, if you've been at Christ Church for a while, you know that I don't seek controversy. 
sort of not my disposition and not how I've understood the job that's in front of me. Now, I try not to shy away from controversial topics because occasionally they come up. So I have talked about uh, money and sex and I have talked about abortion and I've talked about marijuana and I've talked about war and I've talked about living together and I've talked about all kinds of things. And I've talked about politics from time to time. Uh, as a general rule, when I have talked about politics, I have done my best to, to talk about it in a first principles kind of way, not in a partisan way. And I, I think I have done a fairly good job because, uh, as I have joked, I have uh, been accused of being a latte-drinking lefty and, uh, and a right-wing ideologue about equal proportions, sometimes after the same sermon. Uh, so, uh, my, my, goal is not to, uh, my goal is not to take partisan stances, and I don't think that the Bible fits neatly into the two-party system that we have. As I read through the New Testament, as I look at the book of Acts, as I look at, at the early church, I see it, uh, it, it calling people to care for the poor. I see it calling on Christians to fight for justice, including issues of racial justice. Those those generally, not exclusively, I, I'm not going to go there, but those generally line up more with one side uh, of, of the political spectrum. But then there's these issues of morality, and there's this, this call to the sanctity of marriage, and this call to the sanctity of sex to be reserved for marriage between a man and a woman, which don't, which don't neatly fit into uh, the party over here. And so uh, I, I don't think the Bible lines up that way. And uh, I, I think this is all very complicated. And when I look at Jesus, I then see that, that he speaks to these issues and somehow he's calling people to be, to be formed by something that pulls together in the same small group a tax collector who is now working with the Roman oppressors and a zealot who is essentially a guerrilla trying to pull down that very same empire. And somehow he has these two in the same small group and he is pulling them together and pulling them towards some kind of different uh, way forward. And so um, uh, I think that this is not going to be fun. And if we have been discipled, if you have been discipled, if you have been shaped and formed more by a political party uh, or a news station than you have by the Sermon on the Mount, then we get, uh, we take some shots here. And uh, so uh, I say all that to say this is not fun, and uh, yet here it is. It is, it is the, the book that was lined up. I decided I was picking, I don't do resolutions, but I was picking three ideas to sort of guide me through the course of the next year, and one of them uh, was uh, a non-anxious presence, uh, one of them was to finish some things, to not start as many things, but to finish things. And, and the third one was courage. And I said, I, my sense is that I need more than resilience. I, I think we need resilience, but I need courage. And so when I looked at the book of Jonah and I had it lined up and I thought, yeah, maybe we'll do something else. And then I thought, no, that's probably doesn't line up with courage. So uh, I, I'll say this. Uh, I, I actually think things are, in one sense, uh, perhaps worse than you do, I also think they're better. <laughs> so uh, I read people saying, 
what happened, the, you know, what's happening, what's happening is not, it's not America. For whatever reason they're coming at this, is not America. And I say, no, this actually is America. I mean, that's part of the point. We are that broken. I'm not making a political statement here. I'm making a theological statement. We're that broken. And I sort of uh, understand that we are broken. I'm broken, you're broken, the, the world is broken, our political systems are broken, everything's flawed, and uh, everything is fragile, and we have an enemy. We fight against an adversary that seeks this kind of chaos. I also, at the same time, find myself listening to people who are discouraged or angry or despondent or resigned or fearful, and I think, no! No, 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 nothing of eternal significance has changed in the last week. And we're to be people of hope. Uh, and and it's, not always, it's not always easy to be optimistic. But as a Christ follower, we're to be people of hope. We're to be people who, who follow a Savior who had, was clear thinking about the situation and about people. And so uh, I find myself, on the one hand, uh, looking at things and thinking it's darker than some people do, and on the other hand, find myself being very uh, optimistic. So we're going to be in the book of Jonah. It's, it's tough sledding. And uh, there's some, there's some uh, harsh things that Jonah the prophet uh, says. He comes, after, um, he comes after evil. He critiques cultures. A at the same time, he also comes after people who feel superior to others. He comes after the people of God. He comes after the prophet of God. And, and exposes the hypocrisy and the blind spots of somebody who is convinced that they're right and that they're on God's side, when in fact they're missing it by quite a bit. Uh, I, I, I mentioned to Sherry uh, yesterday as I was looking at my notes, I said, well, the good news is Christ Church doesn't have a 25th Amendment, so they can't vote me out uh, uh, quickly. And uh, so, I, and I have long said, you know, I gave up running for homecoming king a long time ago. My job isn't to, uh, isn't to be popular, isn't to tell you things you want to hear. The job of a pastor is to, to go to God's word and say, okay, this is what it means. We've got to figure out what to do with it. So, we're in Jonah, Jonah 1, 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So, we learn two things right out of the gate. Uh, first of all, we learn that Jonah is a prophet. Uh, the word of the Lord coming to somebody, this is code for they're a prophet. Three offices in the Old Testament, three ways that God shaped the people, led the people of God, prophet, priest, and king. All three of these foreshadow who Jesus will be. He will be the perfect prophet. He will be the, the high priest. He will be the king of kings. So all of these are... Everybody is flawed in what they're doing with these, but, uh, but Jonah is a prophet. This was, the this was the worst job. You wanted to be king, or if you couldn't be king, you wanted to be priest. You, you did not want to be a prophet. So the prophets are those who speak to God, uh, very little about foretelling the future, very much about just calling people to the things that they're doing wrong. And uh, so Jonah's a minor prophet. There, there are five major prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Uh, then there's 12 minor prophets that are shorter. They're not less important, they're shorter. So Jonah's one of the shorter minor prophets. He speaks for God. 
And uh, the second thing that we learn in, in Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and that's all it says about Jonah, is that we know this guy. It says it doesn't tell us anything else about him. That's code for you already know about him. So in 1 Kings 14, there is a guy named Jonah, and Jonah there is a, is a good prophet. He is, uh, he's serving during the reign of Jeroboam II. He is, he's a patriot. Uh, he gets an easy assignment in 1 Kings. He's supposed to go tell the Jews that they're going to win a battle. They're going to expand their kingdom. Those are the kind of assignments you actually like. You get to go say nice things to people. So uh, we know some things about Jonah. Verse 2. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amati. Verse 2, go to uh, the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So this is actually the most shocking line in the book. Not the fish. <laughs> this, is, this is what would cause people to get whiplash. Like, wait, what? Uh, so the Assyrians are... The, the, the bad boys on the street at this time. There's a series of empires that will come and go during, during this time. The Assyrians are, are up now. Uh, the phrase skinned alive comes from them. Uh, they had a, their MO included piling, keeping the, the, the skulls, the heads of all the people they'd killed and carting them from one place to the next and piling them up uh, in these big mounds so that you would look, if you're if, if they've now laid siege to your, uh, your town, your village, whatever, and you're behind the wall, you could look and see these, these pyramids of skulls and go, oh my goodness, uh, like they tend to win these things. So they're, they're, uh, they were ruthless. Now, whenever I talk about the Assyrians, somebody always comes up to me after the service and said, hey, I'm an Assyrian. And I go, Okay. Well, I got, I've got Saxon blood in me. The Saxons were barbarians. They tended to strip naked, cover themselves in blue paint, and then yell shrieking at their enemies. Uh, so we've all got, yeah, we've all got historic issues we probably don't want to live up to. I'm not going to hold your Assyrianness against you. You don't hold your, my, um, my Saxon background against me. This is who they were, and, um, and they had this uh, great city of Nineveh. So the great city might, might be speaking to the size of it. It was a very large city. In, in Jonah 3.3, 3, we're told that uh, when he walks around it, it takes him three days. Uh, and then in Jonah 4, we're told there's 120,000 children. So you sort of piece those things together, and, and they suggest that probably about 600,000 people living in the city of Nineveh. Uh, it could be, though, not, it's not about its population, it's, it's about its might. And so again, they were, they were the dominant superpower of the day. Uh, they had this impregnable uh, city, Nineveh. Uh, it had this, this huge wall around it. The wall was not only tall, it was so wide you could drive three chariots across the top of it, uh, uh, side by side. So you've got this very thick, you know, three-lane highway on top of this very thick wall. There were, according to this historical account that we found, I'm a little skeptical, but okay, maybe, uh, there were 
1,500 towers. Every 200 feet, there was a tower that went up another 100 feet above the wall uh, that, they, that they used. And it was supposedly full of plunder, full of wealth because uh, of their successful run. So, um, so go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. So this is what is so, um, this is what is so shocking. Right? Now, it's not, I mean, let's not miss the obvious point here. What is shocking to Jonah in hearing this is not that in essence he's sort of being given a death sentence. Right? Being told in the 8th century BC that you're supposed to go to the Assyrian town of Nineveh and preach against it as a Jew. I mean, this is like saying to, uh, saying to a Jew in the, in, in the 19, early 1940s, your job is to go into Berlin and, uh, and write critical pieces of, against Hitler. And uh, you go, well, I, I'm not gonna last. I'm gonna be killed. But that's not the big issue. For that matter, what's shocking is not simply that this is the first time a Jewish prophet has been sent to prophesy against somebody outside of the Jewish nation. Like this is the first guy sent outside the walls of Israel as a prophet. Some of the Israeli, some of the Jewish prophets had preached about other nations, but they had never gone to another nation and preached to them. Now it's always, it's obviously, the Bible has a missionary thrust to it. I mean, this has obviously always been part of the plan. But this is the there's a sense in which Jonah is the first missionary uh, among the people. But that's not what's shocking. What's shocking is that the, the Assyrians are to be given another chance. What's shocking to Jonah is that he should want to help them. What's shocking to him is that God could somehow care about the Assyrians. Because they're, they're Israel's enemy. And it's unthinkable to Jonah that he would want to help them. This is treason. For him to go there and to help them, this is treason. This isn't a, this isn't a, a Chicago uh, Bears fan being asked to go root for the Green Bay Packers. This is, you know, uh, this is asking a... Uh, a South Korean to go do everything he can to help the North Koreans grow stronger as a nation. And he's just like, no, 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 we, we want that. We want this empire to end. And so, as, as you likely know, as we read on, verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the, um, the port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and said, and sailed for Tarshish uh, to flee from the Lord. So we have a map here, and, and basically what you see with this map is in the bottom right-hand corner is, is Israel. And what Jonah is being told is that he is supposed to go north and east to the city uh, of Nineveh. Instead, he goes south and then sails west. And he sails... Uh, to Tarshish, which is sort of uh, as far away as they knew the world existed. So it would be as if uh, someone living in Chicago is told, go to Toronto, and instead they get on a plane and they fly to Miami, and then they get on a ship and they're sailing to New Zealand. 
This is, I am going as far in the opposite direction as I can. Jonah was told to go north uh, and west. He goes, he goes south and east. Jonah is told to go by land. He goes by sea. Jonah is told to go to the big city. He goes to a, a, an area that has very few people. <laughs> he's, he's doing, he is doing the exact opposite of what uh, God is calling him to do. So, um, Here's the question. Have you ever done anything like that? Have you ever thought that God's plan was a bad plan? That you knew better? Now, let me just interject here and say, uh, that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> of course you have. <laughs> the, the real question is, are you, am I, doing it right now? Or to what extent am I doing it right now? To what extent is, is God coaching me to do one thing and I'm thinking the opposite? And I think that God's plan is wrong. I'm going to circle back to this because this is a, this is a critical question today, but let me keep moving. Verse 4. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Uh, the English uh, Standard Version, and I think the King James doesn't say sent, says hurled, which I really, I like that word. But it's, it's almost like, you know, God throws this storm uh, at them. He hurls this like a spear. The Lord hurls a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, which is significant because sailors... Are sailors, So they've been to storms, and they probably bragged about storms, and they didn't worry about storms because they're sailors. They've been through this. Um, but the sailors were afraid. Each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. That's code for, we think we're going to die. We're going to throw money into the, into the, into the water. And um, quick aside, don't think every storm you face is being hurled at you by God. Uh, the book of Job makes it clear that not every storm, metaphorically or real, is, is being sent to us by God. Um, so what we're told then in the next few verses is that uh, Jonah is going to go below. Well, let's, let's, um, let's keep reading. So next verse. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. This is called escapism, denial, right? I'm going to pull the covers over my head. I'm going to ignore what's going on. Next verse. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will notice uh, us so that we will not perish. Okay, so don't miss the irony here. The prophet of God who doesn't want to talk to any non-Jew is now being spiritually challenged and, and, and pushed by the pagan captain. Uh, don't miss that irony. Reading on. Uh, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. It's a possibility that this storm clearly to them had a supernatural nature to it. Like, this isn't just a storm, what's going on? So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they ask him, uh, verse 8, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? Who are you? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Like, we're going to die here. 
Why are we going to die? What is going on? And Jonah says, uh, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the land and the sea. This uh, terrified them because uh, there were lots of gods that people believed in, but the gods were all regional. And so uh, you could get away from the God. But now what they're being told is by Jonah is, no, I serve the God who, of the land and the sea. <laughs> in other words, you're not going to sail out of this thing. Uh, he's bigger than that. This terrified them. Verse 10. They knew Jonah was running away from God because he'd already told them that. The sea is getting rougher and rougher. They ask him, uh, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for uh, taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. So, because I don't want to have uh, 50 conversations about whether or not I think this actually happened, uh, let me say, there's sort of three camps out there. The one camp says, this is a fish story. It's its own genre. Uh, fish always are bigger than in reality, and the longer you go, the bigger they get, especially if you didn't actually catch them. Pretty soon they're all whales, and yeah, yeah. So, no, this didn't happen. Second line is, oh, I know this happened because I've read about it. Uh, it happened down in the Falkland Islands in the 1980s. This fisherman fell off a boat, and they, 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 they caught the fish that swallowed him, and he was, he was in trouble, but he was still alive. And, uh, or my grandfather back in the 50s in the Mississippi River at the Lock and Dam caught this catfish, and it was the size of a house. Right? So, and then and there's a third group that says, the Bible says it, I believe it. Uh, there's no question here. So I come at this and I say this. Um, I, I do believe it happened. I believe it happened because, um, first of all, I've, I, have made, I have made peace with the idea that there is a God of miracles who spoke the universe into creation and who can raise people from the dead and who can heal people. And, and so as miracles go, this is sort of a small miracle. I, now, I'm not interested in whether this could happen in reality, you know, that, that outside of a miracle and the intervention of God that it could happen. It doesn't make sense to me. But uh, the Bible, the, the book of Jonah, the Bible is not full of miracles. Many people think it is. There's, there's lots of books that don't have any miracles, but there are there are books that have miracles. In Exodus, we see miracles. And in, in the life around Jesus, we see miracles. In the book of Jonah, we see miracles. We're going to see the storm being calmed instantly, which is going to freak them out. I mean, that's a supernatural thing. We're going to see a, a, a plant that grows up overnight and becomes huge. That's supernatural. We're going, to see, we're going to see a variety of things. We're going to see the people of Nineveh spared, which in one sense is a huge miracle. 
And, and then uh, another reason why I think that this happened is because in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is going to reference this. The Pharisees are questioning him. And they're going to say, uh, you know, we want a sign, we want proof. And he says, yeah, a wicked and perverse generation always wants a sign. You're not going to get any signs except for the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly uh, of, the, of the beast for three days and three nights, the Son of Man is going to be in the earth for three days and three nights. So Jesus sort of references this. And, and so yeah, I think it happened. I just think we've got to keep this in perspective. It really gets almost no ink in the book of Jonah. There are other things that are... Uh, more important. And so I want to just set these in front of you because, again, we'll be in this book for the next couple months. I, wanna, I just, I just want to make sure that you see um, there are opportunities here for us to think more critically about ourselves. So the first issue that comes up in the book of Jonah that I'm going to mention is uh, his nationalism. Now, this is going to come under much closer scrutiny later, and so we'll look at it later when, when it comes up. Um, but Jonah cannot believe that God could love his enemy. Jonah cannot wrap his mind around the idea that God is not completely on his side. And, and that is something that we need to deal with. Um, Again, this week especially, this is, uh, this is a hot potato. This is a, this, is, this is a dicey topic. But I want to ask you, in what ways is your identity formed by something other than Jesus? In what ways is, is your worldview shaped by things more significantly than the teaching of Christ, than the Sermon on the Mount, than, than the life of Jesus, than the things that he claimed. We, we are all located, uh, and we're, we'll, again, we'll, we'll look at this whole idea of patriotism and, and identity, but to the extent that we are shaped more, more fundamentally by something other than God's description of us and the call of Christ on our life, um, we're going to have problems. Secondly, have to see Jonah's blind spots and the hypocrisy and, and come to an understanding that Jonah, the man of God, the prophet of God, is, uh, is being held up in this book as a case study of the one who is consistently getting it wrong. So there's two ways that Jonah is going to get it wrong. In the first two chapters, Jonah is running away from God. In the last two chapters, Jonah is doing what he, what God is asking him to do, but he's doing it for entirely the wrong reasons. This is the parallel to the parable of the prodigal son. <laughs> In the first two chapters, Jonah is the prodigal. He's the younger son. He's running away. He's doing everything he can to, to get away from his father, who is the God figure in the parable of the prodigal son. Then he comes back. And in the last two chapters, he's the older brother who is, who is doing the right thing, but whose heart is far from God. 
And, uh, and so there is a critique here um, that, that we need to look at. Third, to what extent are you running away from what God is calling you to do? To what extent are you not, again, thinking about life and people and enemies in the way God is calling us to do that? It turns out that it's very hard to obey God when you think he's wrong. And and consistently, one of the tactics of the enemy is to persuade us that God doesn't have our best interest in mind. And yet he does, and he calls us forward. And so trusting that God knows best is enormously difficult. And outside of the the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure we can get there. Secondly, I want to just say on this point, my observation as a pastor living in this community for the last 20 years is that The way people around here run from God is by sloth. But it's not sloth as we define it today. It's not, you know, sleeping in and being lazy. It's sloth as it was understood by the Desert Fathers as they set it out as in one of the seven deadly sins, uh, Acedia. It is... The idea that, the, that, that I am going to fill my life with so much stuff that I don't actually have the downtime to reflect and to wrestle with God and to hear God. I'm going to be so busy, in many cases, doing good things, that, that I can stiff-arm God. I can hold him at bay. I don't have to think about it. And so... Um, Running from God may look different than you think. Well, I'm going to give you an assignment. The assignment is to read the book of Jonah. Uh, It's short, four chapters. You've already basically made it through one. Uh, The second uh, second chapter is is a hard chapter. I'll just warn you, it is the prayer of Jonah from the belly of the beast, and so that's a little different. Chapters three and four are more back to the narrative and what happens. And I, I suspect you don't know what happens. Maybe you do. Maybe you know the book of Jonah well. But um, I want you to read it. Uh, read it in advance of uh, small group. Read it in advance of, of discussion and reflection. And asking yourself this question, in what ways am I like Jonah? In what ways am I like Jonah? And, and then to be encouraged and challenged. To be encouraged because what we're going to see is that God can use uh, reluctant, small-minded, spiritually proud, uh, and, and frequently not very self-aware people <laughs> like Jonah and like anyone else in the room who might fit that description, like all of us, right? Small-minded, spiritually proud, uh, and often not very self-aware. That is... That is the character that the book of Jonah holds out. So, uh, look, we don't want to end 2021 where we started. (laughs) We want to be more like Christ. And uh, challenges, trials, and prophetic words can often be a vehicle to that end. So let me pray for us. 
sing a final song. Lord God, we thank you that, uh, that you are God. Thank you that you are in control. We thank you that uh, with the perspective that comes from your word, with the perspective that comes from Christ, from the gospel, from history, we know that uh, in many ways things are both worse and better than we might be thinking right now. And uh, we want to open our hearts, open our lives, open our minds to, to you, Spirit of God. We pray for insight. Help us to see ourselves more accurately. Help us to, uh, to lean into the radical call to, um, to love even our enemies. Guide us to that end, we pray. Amen.